Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. So there's been a lot of talk about bubbles over the last year, about Robin Hood, about crazy retail investors, and I've been quite vocal about how unusual that behaviour is when you look as we do all the time, at what NAB trade investors are doing. Mostly everyone's been really sensible and frankly made some exceptionally smart decisions over the last 12 months. They've done really, really well. But there is a world of wild stuff out there and Morningstar's Mark LaMonica has been getting into the very real world of what he's calling Bubbleville. He's written a brilliant three-part series on it. I recommend it really highly. It's a lot of fun to read. And he's agreed kindly to talk to us about why retail investors might just be at the precipice, or some of them anyway. Hopefully none of ours. Mark, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, I know. It's great to be here. It's, uh, I'm so keen to talk about this. It's going to be so much fun. And like, your article literally made me laugh. There were three of them. And then I started going, oh, God, this is a real worry. <laughs> it's hilarious but terrifying. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been looking into? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, we we take our mission pretty seriously at Morningstar. So our mission is to help people achieve their goals, obviously create better futures for themselves and their families. And we can talk a little later about that. But we do have a subscription product uh, that accesses our research. And that's very, very based on higher net worth people just with the fee. It just does not make sense to pay that. But we also have some free products as well. And we really want those to engage investors all along that sophistication spectrum. So we have a podcast, for example. It's like yours, but only my mother listens to it. But uh, <laughs> but I'm on it with uh, I'm on it with a colleague of mine, Shani Jayamani, who is brilliant. And we've got a podcast. We do a couple webinars a week. And then, of course, we have editorial content that goes out there. So we're trying to serve all investors. And just with my role, I'm trying to figure out what exactly is going on in the market. And so I think, as you know, and as we talked about before, there's been this huge surge of new investors that have come into the market, particularly sort of since that COVID drop that happened in February and March of last year. And uh, and this is great. You know, we believe passionately that investing is a way you can transform your lives. So we're really, really happy about that. But really, this Bubbleville series was in response to me going out and looking at some of the places where they are getting advice and guidance from. And, uh, and yeah, there's just been this cottage industry that's popped up to serve these new investors. And at the end of the day, I guess, didn't really like what I was seeing. And, you know, I think uh, I think before we go into this, I do want to say there are a lot of spaces in the financial services industry that do not serve investors well, particularly investors that are just starting out. So I think if we look at financial advice in Australia, just with the cost and just the fact that there aren't enough advisors, it's very much based on high net worth people. So there is this gap and there are people trying to find ways to uh, to figure out how to invest. And, you know, we were talking about this also before, particularly with women. I think the financial services industry really does a pretty terrible job. And we've seen survey after survey that women are put into conservative portfolios, um, really have low satisfaction with advisors unless they're women. And of course, there's too few female financial advisors. So I just want to say all that before I start getting into uh, getting into some of the things that I don't like that I've been seeing. But uh, but yeah, we can talk. Uh, we can talk about what I explored in Bubbleville. It's such an interesting point that you make because it is it's such a complex industry. I mean, the advice industry is 
I worked in advice for a really long time and came across to this self-directed part of the universe where people get to choose their own shares, their own ETFs, they want to invest in whatever they can. We provide a lot of research and Morningstar's quant research is part of that. And that does help make help making decisions easier, I guess. But there is always this issue of just getting started. It's quite nerve-wracking for people. I've been told a girlfriend of mine is a GP, right? So she's not stupid. And she said, I listened to your podcast and I didn't understand what you were talking about. <laughs> so I also go, okay, how do we ensure that what we're talking about is relevant to a reasonably wide group of people and that someone who wants to make good financial decisions but is concerned about getting started or trying to work out where to get their information from is well served and already I'm getting feedback from my friends that what I'm doing is not hitting the mark. <laughs> it's quite depressing really. But there's this universe, as you say, where people have uh, built profiles and uh, extraordinary forums to communicate their ideas about finance and some of it's excellent. We were talking about the Barefoot Investor earlier. I mean, he's a guy who's built an entire profile. And there's a few very good US examples like Dave Ramsey and so on. Very, very similar. Uh, models are almost identical. But they're great for really straightforward, practical advice for people. And then there's a universe of other stuff. So tell me a bit about the universe of other stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we've, uh, we were talking before about Instagram and, you know, I think a couple of things, like if we, if we go out there and look here, we look at what happened with GameStop, for example, I think that gave a lot of people the first opportunity to look at these Reddit boards and Facebook boards where people are going to get advice. Now that's largely male dominated. <laughs> there's also been on Instagram, there's well, everyone knows that there are lifestyle brands on Instagram and it's used to sell products, particularly to women. So sort of traditionally kind of fashion and beauty products. Well, kind of the two things got put together. And so we call them Finfluencers. Um, so financial influencers. And yeah, it's it's kind of just that. So basically, at the end of the day, you've got people out there that have very little investing experience. And they are, of course, catering to a whole group of people that also has very little investing experience. And, you know, I think I said in one of the articles that it's a case where the teacher is literally a couple pages ahead of the students. Um, so it's just created this interesting situation. And, you know, at NAB Trade, at Morningstar, we obviously are, we have to abide by ASIC, ASIC reg regulations. Um, we do have all sorts of things that we need to do to make sure that investors are protected. None of this, of course, applies on Instagram. So we do have people that are giving what I think is pretty poor advice um, and pitching products, which isn't really disclosed. And so, yeah, it's a it's an interesting world. And at the end of the day, it's setting expectations. And I think my biggest problem is it's setting expectations that are never going to be met. Um, and that's just putting a lot of pressure on people. So there are all these different forums and I've never come across the Finfluencer because I do have Instagram, but my Instagram is literally pretty pictures of houses and that's all <laughs> I'm interested in. It's very much escapism uh, and no risk of taking any financial advice from anyone on there except spend far too much money on a cushion or, frankly, a whole <laughs> new go. house. Uh, Twitter is amazing to me. So Twitter is one where I seems to be very, very male-dominated, a very small universe of women in there. Uh and that seems to be true of Twitter in general, not just the finance Twitter. Uh, and people argue over stocks very aggressively. They go after each other personally. Like it's quite, it's quite an astonishing universe of 
quite bad behaviour you would never see in real life. Yeah, absolutely. Very <laughs> clear financial advice in terms of people saying what they think about a stock. And it's very stock specific. I'm interested in the difference between the different platforms, right, where people are finding something that resonates for them. So I imagine that Instagram, because it's so visual, is very pretty and it makes it very attractive and for women it's somewhere that's a bit safer to go. Twitter is quite aggressive. It's very stock specific uh, and the universe of blokes, young blokes it seems on Twitter who sort of rapidly follow each other and either agree vehemently or disagree vehemently depending on what their thing is is quite fascinating. Reddit I'm not even across. I, I don't really go into yeah, Reddit. Did thing. you look there too? Oh yeah, same thing. I mean, it's it's terrible. So <laughs> yeah, what, what, what you would expect, just aggressive right. behavior and no real debate. Um, so yeah, it's uh, kind of Reddit and then there's some Facebook boards. Oh, there are. Okay. Um, so Facebook as well. And what's happening on Facebook? Same thing as Reddit. So mm. same thing, very male dominated, um, you know, rocket emojis all over the place <laughs> for uh, for stocks that are supposed yep. to go up. And yep. yeah, just not a lot of tolerance for any sort of dissenting opinion. So it's funny that, you know, one of the things on, on Facebook, so we talked about, yeah, very equity focused, individual share focused. People who post about ETFs almost do this in this very timid way <laughs> because they know a lot of it is challenging of your manhood if you are actually investing in an ETF and oh, not yeah. some, you know, miner in WA that... <laughs> doesn't even have land. So yeah, mm. it's a very interesting, uh, it's an interesting environment. It is It is quite fascinating what, what resonates with people and where they do go and find the cohort of people that apparently work for them, right? Like, and, and this sort of information that they're interested in. It's, you know, all of these platforms exist to serve one or, and there's also the forums, right? Like, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention them, but Hot Copper is one of the big examples and that's yeah, been around absolutely. for ages before any of the platforms kind of started to fill that need as well. Do you think more people are getting dragged in now because there are more platforms serving more preferences? Yeah, I mean, I think I think more people are getting dragged in. And I guess, you know, the one thing I would like to say, I do have a lot of empathy for investors that are trying to start out. And, you know, if you look at, so there's this Facebook uh, group, ASX Stock Tips, that has I mean, don't quote me on the number, but like 40,000 like members on there. And, you know, I do go through the post sometimes and it is, there's a small amount of people that are actually posting. And I do think that hopefully most of the people on there are just genuinely trying to figure out how to invest and how to learn about investing. And, you know, we were talking before about this event that I went to last week um, with the equity mates. And, you know, we were talking about how they do a good job trying to trying to deal with new investors and try to get them a little more sophisticated and learn about investing. And, you know, some of their audience, I think, probably follows uh, follows some of these ASX stock tip boards. But we're sitting at a table before the event and this woman came over that was in uni and sat down and we just started talking to her, a couple members of my team. And, you know, she was an example of someone that just wanted to learn about investing. She came to this event by herself. She lived pretty far out west. It was a long train trip. And she just came to this event to learn about investing. So I do think those people are out there. I just were, and they're the majority of people that genuinely just want to do what we've seen happen, people saving and investing and improving their lives and their futures. They just don't know where to turn. Um, so that's why I think this stuff annoys me a little bit because I think a lot of the advice that you get is bad. So particularly on these boards, obviously no contact, somebody recommending a stock and recommending it with rocket emojis isn't uh, 
yeah, isn't well-researched, I would say. I think also if you are a person who is trying to do – I mean, that young woman sounds amazing to me. Anyone who is confident enough to get on a train from out west in Sydney we're talking about here, you know, it would probably take a 45 minutes to an hour to get there. It was held in a brewery, which is – as I said to Mark, the least attractive place for some <laughs> for part of the investing population. I've never voluntarily been to a brewery. It's just not my thing. They could have had it in a wine bar. Um, my husband would have happily gone to a wine bar. Not so we're not going to a brewery after this No, is that's over. not what's happening. Okay. <laughs> we can talk about the wine bar then. Yeah, wine bar. Good with wine bars. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, so it's not... Not designed to attract everybody when you hold it in a brewery, although you yeah. did say to me that it was uh, it was talking about alcohol stocks and spe- specifically. Yeah. But again, wine bar would have been fun. Um, <laughs> and then if you don't drink, you don't want to go to one of those places either, right? That's another part that of the That wasn't population. a problem for me, but you know, <laughs> for some people, I guess. So for someone to do that is amazing to me, right? That shows so much confidence and so much eagerness to learn. So you hope then when they make so much effort that they get really good quality advice at the end of it or that they're taking, in, they're taking away something that they can think about sincerely. And, you know, Morningstar, you guys do deep research. That's your job. And the Equity Mates, I've only listened to a handful of their podcasts, but the ones that I've listened to, they do sincerely try to put quite a bit of thought into what they've done research on and explain it very clearly, which is why they're so popular. But the emoji stuff is so different, right? And this is what I'm trying to get at. For that young woman to have the confidence to go, but also the confidence to resist the lure of the rocket emoji. Like, Everyone knows about that stock that went up 2,000 times. Everyone knows about the going to the moon thing. Everyone hates themselves for not buying. Uh, you know, one of the stock researchers, whom I really like, by the way, but all of their marketing is like, it's like buying Afterpay at $4.32. That's what their marketing starts with. Yeah. And everyone goes, God damn it, I wish I'd bought Afterpay at $4.32. We all feel that way. And to resist the lure of the thing that's going to make you mega rich overnight, it takes a lot of a lot of discipline in this environment, particularly when the universe of seductive marketing techniques is just massive now, wherever you go. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, if we go back and we look at social media in general, and I'm not an expert in any of this, mm. but, you know, there have been countless studies talking about how it leads to depression and anxiety and stress. And all of this is because, you know, people portray these lives that don't actually exist. And it's the same thing with investing, right? Like nobody ever puts up their bad ideas, their bad trades. So everyone bought after pay at four and <laughs> you never hear the bad stories, right? And so that's what people are getting from these things. And it's just unrealistic. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the other stories that I love, and this is quite funny because, as I said, they're quite aggressive, the people on Twitter, um, and they, they tend to have a go at each other. And sometimes it would appear that a, a young guy is trying to give the impression that he's been a mega successful investor and will put up pictures of himself with a Ferrari or whatever other really super fancy car he's had. And then people will start mocking it and going, we know you rented it for the day. <laughs> or that you, that you were only working as a a valet driver or whatever. (laughs) The stories are hysterical. But the idea that you would post a picture of yourself with a super fancy car, if you're a 19-year-old bloke, you know, with your first pay packet, I can imagine that's very attractive, right? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think... I think one of the things, so at Morningstar, we are very much proponents of goals-based investing, which means you have different goals for me, Mm. right? So we are going to buy 
different shares. Mm. We're going to buy different investments. And we did uh, on Investing Compass, which is our podcast, we actually, um, Sashani, who is my co-host on it, we walked through her retirement plan. Now, she is 28 years old. She has a long way to go, obviously, before retirement. But we just walked through her plan and tried to talk about, okay, you start with you. You start with your goals. And then we figure out what investments actually meet the plan that you need to achieve those goals. And and that's another problem with this stuff. You know, this is why there are general advice and personal advice provisions in there, because you need to know something about somebody in order to provide specific investments. And you get none of that, of course, in any of these channels, right? It's just, once again, here's, yeah, here's some speculative stock that you should invest in and you'll be rich and then you'll have your Ferrari. <laughs> it's um one of the things I love that you pointed out is you can't call yourself an expert. And I have the same problem. Often I'll be writing a quick blurb for the podcast and I'll say, so-and-so expert. And our compliance team will be like, you can't say that. What proof have you got that this person's an expert? I'll be like, oh, goodness me. Okay. And it's true, right? I've been investing for 20 years. You've been investing for 20 years or more. You've written, you know, the experiences that you've had that shape you as an investor. You've got a CFA, which I most definitely don't have. It's a certified financial analyst for anyone who's interested. And it is brutal because everyone I know who's done it, uh, one of my good friends who's very bright, failed the first exam twice. It's not easy. Uh, And yet you're not allowed to call yourself an expert, but apparently on all of these other forums, you can certainly imply that you're one, right? Yeah. It's just, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question, obviously, for ASIC that where are the most vulnerable investors getting advice? Well, they're getting them from social media largely. And yet there is no regulation there. And I I can't think of a good way that this could be regulated. Mm -hmm. So I'm not certainly there's no fault of theirs. I don't know how you regulate people's social media accounts. But I mean, that's a problem, right? Most vulnerable investors are getting the worst advice. Interestingly enough, there's an article in the paper the other day where social media influencers were getting pinged for recommending $300 face cream or whatever it was and not disclosing that it was an ad. So if you can ping that, which seems pretty minor, you definitely should be able to ping the... Yeah, yeah. There's just, it's interesting stock. that there's more outrage about that <laughs> yeah. um, than, uh, than everything else. Like I always, I don't know, I sit there and I can't say I follow a lot of these Instagram accounts, but I sit there and say, of course they are selling these products. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. But So couple of things to ask you. Yeah. You've alluded to this already, but abnormal, the, the irrational exuberance, right, which is the brilliant expression that does describe investor behaviour, however it manifests itself. It's been a phenomenon in every major bubble. 1929, the tulips, we love talking about the tulips, the South Sea <laughs> bubble, there's all of these bubbles and it's all about the irrational exuberance, the bit where everyone gets so exciting, so excited about the opportunity, they forget that there's any risk involved and it's all going to the moon, so that's today's expression, but, you know, it's frankly <laughs> the same thing. You can't lose, you will definitely make money out of this, you're stupid for not doing it. That's the one I find really interesting because you always feel a bit dumb for not having bought Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever else. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You feel a bit stupid. And so there is this, this irrational exuberance is a phenomenon every time we go through a cycle and it starts to peak. Firstly, are you? do you feel like things are peaking based on what you're seeing and do you think it's being exacerbated by the social media? Yeah, yeah. So maybe 
First with the social media. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think uh, I think that same thing I was talking about before, the influence that social media has on people and stress and anxiety. And what is that? It's that fear of missing out. So mm. I think it's exasperating that whole thing. And then, yeah, if we go back and look at different crashes, right? So if we go back to 29, right? So the bubble before that, yeah, maybe if you lived in New York and you had a lot of money and you heard about how well the stock market is doing, you take a margin loan and you walk into your broker and buy some shares, right? Pretty limited population that I was impacted. And obviously it led to the Great Depression and led to all sorts of terrible things. Same thing, kind of the nifty 50 bubble, right? In the 70s, like now, there was democratized investing because there were managed funds. So great, well, now you can invest in a managed fund, but still, you're getting it from newspapers and radio and television and things like that. Then we go to dot-com bubble. So all of a sudden there's online trading. So now it's easier to do. You don't have to go through a broker. But there's just never been an environment like this. And I think that, you know, social media taking this natural thing that happens, as you said, you know, Ben Graham's fear and greed driving the market. So now we're at greed and social media is just making it worse. So, yeah, I mean, I do uh, I do think that social media is making worse. Um, and then in terms of what's happening, yeah, I think there's this acceleration. So Jeremy Grantham wrote this piece. And so he's a fund manager in the U.S. And he wrote this piece and he's famously called a bunch of the other bubbles. And so he wrote this piece talking about the last sign before a bubble pops and it's crazy behavior. And some of this stuff is crazy behavior, um, you know, and we have made up joke cryptocurrencies that are going through the roof. That's the problem. What happened with GameStop was crazy behavior. So, you know, he certainly thinks he's far smarter than I am. He thinks that we are getting close to the end. I think he actually called Northern Hemisphere summer. Um, so our winner here, oh. when he thought things were going to peak. Now, I have no idea if that's true, obviously. Um, it's just his opinion. But, uh, but yeah, I do think we're in a bubble. I do think it's accelerating. And I think social media probably has a lot to do with it. That's – it's quite telling, right? I mean, the ASX is fairly – modest in terms of its response to this. And it's probably worth calling that out because one of the things I've been saying is we don't see it really in our investors. They're very sensible. They're very prudent. Our cash levels are back at record highs, which is a good sign our guys are not throwing every dollar at it. There's always going to be a small number of investors who are more aggressive. But again, you know, they're probably young and they can probably afford to lose their money so long as they learn from it, fine. Uh, but the, you know, the vast bulk of our investors are being really prudent at the moment. They're a bit concerned about where the market's at. And yet when I look at the US, it's so different, right? It's dramatically different. Some of their companies, a good proportion of the stock market, are very different, right? They do have network effects. The incremental cost of adding a new customer is effectively zero because they're in technology boom, uh, technology sectors and so on. So there are good reasons why some companies continue to grow dramatically, even in a fairly subdued economic environment. But you sort of feel like everyone's taken that story to the nth degree and are running with it. The Robin Hood thing as well, you, when you were talking about the population who are getting involved in this, being so much greater now. In the US, you would imagine it's even greater again, because in Australia, we do have barriers to entry. It does cost you money to buy shares. It doesn't cost you a lot compared to 20 years ago, but still costs you money. You still have to be 18 to open an account. It is very difficult to get credit. They're starting to clamp down on some of the CFD stuff, which was quite, quite astonishing. You could get 500 times leverage. That's a real worry. Uh, 
but they're starting to clamp down on some of that. So most of the vanilla products are reasonably sensible and it's there are still some barriers to entry, whereas when you look at Robin Hood and it's free to trade and you can get enormous amounts of leverage and trade binary options and all this kind of stuff with no experience, it feels a bit mental. Yeah, yeah, and I think the problem is, you know, I, I agree with you about Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there are more and more Australians that are trading particularly in the U.S. market. Um, But, I mean, the other thing is if the U.S. market goes down, the Australian market's going down too, right? So, you know, I did not live here. So I've been here about six and a half years. I wasn't here during the GFC. Mm. But, you know, going back and looking at that period in Australia, you guys never went into a recession. But the Australian market still went down significantly. Fell 55%. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) We had a worse time than you did from memory. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, it's just an example of Mm. this stuff that's happening in the U.S., particularly around, yeah, options. So people basically creating a bunch of leverage in their portfolio through options. Yeah. I I mean, I'm kind of concerned about it. I know that, you know, we we have so much like you're saying that people on NabTrade are more sensible, more conservative. We have the same population at Morningstar. Obviously, sort of our investment philosophy lends itself to that. But I know people are nervous. I do a webinar twice a week and take questions from people. And yeah, they're unsettled. And I think people can be unsettled even without doing this. If they're not directly making all these speculative investments, I think people understand that this could have a pretty big impact on the market. Could destabilize things. Tell me a bit about some of the questions you get from your investors. It'd be great to know. Oh, yeah. Geez. It's, uh, yeah, I do these twice a week and I get a lot of questions, but a lot of it, I think, a lot of it just sort of given our population is the transition to retirement um, at the end of the day. And I think, you know, people, as you know, obviously interest rates are very low. You are getting nothing from fixed interest. You're getting nothing from cash. And I think just a lot of concerns about, okay, from an asset allocation perspective, where should I be? Um, And I think people understand, you know, sequencing risk and the fact that you're going into retirement or you're just in retirement and the market falls, that can lead to really bad outcomes for you. So- yeah, a lot of, I think a lot of concerns about that. That's so telling. And it is the number one question we get, obviously, also, which does lead so much into the next question. It's so hard for investors to hold firm on a conservative position in a zero rate environment because you are effectively losing money every day that you're in cash or fixed income and you watch everything else going to the moon. And if you're, and I'm thinking about, young and middle-aged people who talk to me going, oh, but what about this thing? What about this thing? And they've got FOMO. But you imagine being 55 or 60 and about to retire. That's terrifying, right? Because you're not just at risk of not having enough money to last your retirement. You're at risk of losing half of it two days after you retire, which happened to a colleague of mine. Um, So during the GFC, just leading up to the GFC, uh, there were massive changes to superannuation in Australia. So 1 July 2007 was the start of the new regime and people had to uh, get their contributions in, right? So you had a sort of a very hard limit on when you could get these massive contributions into super. So people put in this million-dollar contribution for 1 July 2007. They invested it and three months later the market peaked and then fell <laughs> fell to bits and didn't make new highs until, you know, a few months back, right, or a year ago. Uh, people hurt so badly at the worst possible time. And the colleague of mine who retired in 2007 came back to work in 2008 
it uh, his retirement was very short indeed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the problem, right? And that's and that's the whole thing, right? That these are people's lives, and it's it's fine to sit there and you know the anonymity of the internet and social media and everything else. But these are real people's lives, and it's not just their lives; it's their families. It's what their kids are going to get. I don't know. There's just there's just a lot involved. And so I think one of the nice things about these webinars is being able to speak to people and, you know, get questions directly from people. And yeah, there I, I think the problem is a lot of our subscribers, a lot of people that go to Morningstar are more knowledgeable. Um, sometimes knowing things can make things a lot more scary. So yeah, I think they're worried. Yeah, I can imagine. You talk about yourself sort of jokingly, maybe not in the series as a lonely bear. Um, my husband says something very similar about me. Uh, <laughs> resident bear is what I'm known as. Uh, but you've noticed you're heavily invested in equities, and so am I, right? Just because I'm bearish often <laughs> doesn't mean I'm not willing to invest. Do you feel bearish at the moment or are you just nervous? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a good question. I mean, I think that uh, I think we're just in an environment now where if you are not an absolute cheerleader mm. for uh, for everything that's happening, yeah, people label you as a bear. But yeah, as you said, most of my net worth is in the stock market. Um, you know, the, the things that I've done is I turned off dividend reinvestment and let some cash build up over the past couple of years, which, you know, where we are right now was has taken away from returns. Mm. And then contributions to savings I'm making now some of it, maybe half of it's going into cash. So I don't think that that's particularly bearish. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the reactions, if I say anything negative about anything, the reactions are like I have shorted the market <laughs> and, and like hoping it falls. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want it to fall. I work in financial services. I work for a company that is very associated with investing, obviously, as do you. I don't want there to be a downturn. I don't want that to happen to our subscribers. Um, but yeah, I'm just worried, I guess I would say. So I share the worries that uh, that many of the people I talk to on webinars have, for example. Interestingly, I think a lot of our investors are hoping for a downturn. They've got so much cash sitting on the sidelines. they're ready to go. They're yeah. desperate for this fall to buy stuff and they're not keen to buy it at current prices. So I think there's a big group of people who are desperately hoping things come back, but it it wears on you when it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And I and, and listen, I'm not retiring anytime soon as mm. much as I'd like to. But uh but yeah, no, I've got a while and yeah, I have some cash built up. So I see it as an opportunity. And, you know, one of the things I did write in the article is I tried to go back and look at, you know, sort of my investing career. You know, I started in uh in uni, sitting in my dorm room in the US, um, right before the dot com bubble burst. Remember the GFC very well, and that I managed to hold my nerve and actually put some money in, but it was scary and hard. And even though I knew that was the right thing to do, it's still very, very difficult. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be an opportunity, but I also know how much, as you said, how much pain that can cause, particularly for people that are older than I am that are about to retire or just retired. So the key question, I think, for so many people, every bubble the mantra is this time it's different, right? And it's a running joke, this time it's different, it's a running joke. But a zero interest rate environment is different. It's very, very different. And I think many of us have underestimated how much impact that would have and how long it would go on for. So we always talk about normalisation of interest rates, but frankly, we're a long way from ever getting back to normal. I mean, and central banks are explicitly saying they've got no intention of getting back to normal for quite a while. Do you feel that makes it different? Yeah. I mean, there, there's there's obviously the substitution effect that we talked about, that people aren't getting any returns from fixed interest or from cash. So why not 
shares, dividend paying shares, something more conservative. And then, you know, I understand how shares valued, right? I understand that we are discounting cash flows and that discount rate is driven by interest rates. So the lower it is, the more shares should be worth. I guess my concern is, you know, and what you said in the question, which is true, central bankers have all told us, and I don't think they're they're being genuine here, they've all told us that rates are going to stay low for a long time. And I think that that's their intention. The problem is it's priced into the market. And so my worry is that falling interest rates have obviously driven a lot of equity returns as that discount rate gets lower. They're probably not going to fall anywhere. So even if they stay at the same level, I'm very worried that we're not going to get that valuation bump. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the other thing is, of course, you know, it's priced into the market. So if there's a surprise, a surprise is going to be the upside. So if it's an inflation surprise, if it's an interest rate surprise, I think the market's going to react very badly. And we saw a little bit of that in February, um, just with a pretty minor move up that then central banks corrected. Um, and then I think the other thing is that I was referencing before, if we look at returns, so where do returns come from from a share? So they come from valuations increasing. So valuations have increased as interest rates have gone down. They're not going down anymore. Valuation levels, even if they stay the same, we're not getting that bump. And then they come from dividends. So dividends are at a record low for a lot of uh, a lot of companies. So we're not getting much from dividends. And then the other thing is earnings growth. And at the end of the day, the economies aren't doing that well. Um, so obviously, there's been a bounce back after COVID, but still, we're not seeing a lot of economic growth. So I just sit there and I just don't know where returns are going to come from. And I also sit on Instagram and I hear people saying you're going to get 12% a year from a diversified portfolio. And I think that is just an example of those expectations that aren't going to be met. That's really interesting. It, even the fact that someone on Instagram would give an explicit return outcome. It's these casual, they, they say it in such like a casual way. It's just these casual comments that, yeah, buy some. And, and you know, I don't think they're. I don't think they're bad people in any way. I think they just don't know. And so they're sitting there and they're talking, buy some ETFs. You'll get 12% a year. And I don't know. It's insane. <laughs> I just, I don't get it. And then if somebody says that, mm. somebody says that on uh, on mm. one of these, you know, sort of male-dominated Facebook boards mm. or Twitter, I'm sure is the oh same thing. Oh, my God, thing. wouldn't try it on Twitter. Yeah, everyone yeah. would sit there and say, you're only getting 12% a year. What's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you idiot. Yeah, exactly. Why are you so conservative? Yeah, like, you clearly okay. don't know how to pick stocks like I do. Exactly. That's exactly. That would be the response you would get. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's a brave new world. And it does... I will say it does make you feel old and it makes you feel conservative, some of this stuff. Like it's a weird experience to go, uh, I've been buying shares for a long time. I really love shares. Love them. Love my job. It's great. And I feel like the person who's a bit bit bearish on shares because there's a whole universe of people who are so aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel the same thing. So it's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting spot. <laughs> it's an interesting point in time we live in. Mark... You guys provide, so as I mentioned at the beginning, we have Morningstar's Quant Research as part of the NABTRADE proposition. So if you're a NABTRADE customer, and we'd love you to become one if you're not, when you log in, you have access to a whole lot of research and Morningstar's Quant Research is part of it. But a lot of people are looking for qualitative research where the actual company has been analysed uh, by someone who's going to 
meet with the executives and talk to you about what the uh, future earnings growth is going to look like based on the fundamentals of the business and so on. That's what you guys do. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have we have a product specifically designed for individuals. Uh, it's called Morningstar Premium. So that's the team that I run. And yeah, as you said, so you get access to 1,600 global stocks, so qualitative research. We've got analysts here in Sydney. We've got analysts in Asia, US, Europe as well. So you get all of that access. 450 funds and ETFs are also included, and then a bunch of tools. Um, so including ShareSite, so you get a ShareSite subscription as part of Morningstar Premium. So as I said, that's our subscription service, and that is designed just the way that it is priced. It's designed for people that do have larger portfolios and that are self-directed investors. But yeah, I just want to make a plug for the rest of Morningstar. We have a team of journalists here in Sydney and around the world who provide great content, um, if you want another podcast other than this one, yeah, you can listen to Investing Compass. We have webinars. So we hopefully have a lot of resources for everyone. And, uh, and yeah, we just hope that uh, we hope that we can provide a little bit of education and perspective to what's going on. I think the attraction uh, of the research is a lot of our investors want to pick their own stocks, right? We do have people who are happy to invest in ETFs, but stock picking is at the heart of what a lot of our guys do. They're not going to Twitter in many cases. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're exactly. not looking for a finfluencer. Uh, they're going to look for someone who's actually done the research. And so that's that's quite attractive for a lot of people. I know a lot of our investors also will go to a professional fund manager, but if you're looking to do your own research or look at some of the research that's been done for you, that is one of the options. Yeah, absolutely. Mark LaMonica from Morningstar, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We've received some fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.